Of all the things that need to be made obsolete, the condom may be at the top of the list. Second on the list is definitely phone-based customer service, but that's beside the point. Somehow, despite all of our scientific, biomedical, and technological achievement, we're still using the same method to prevent sexually transmitted infections as the ancient Egyptians. And no shade to ancient Egypt, but they didn't even know what the brain was for. That's not to say the condom isn't great at its job. Condoms effectively reduce the risk of STIs. I mean, they're a physical barrier that prevents contact with fluids and skin surfaces that can spread infection. But the fact that they're a physical barrier may also be the reason they're not used as much as they could be. In a 2017 survey of Americans aged 15 to 44, a third of women who had used a condom in the last four weeks said the condom was used only part of the time during intercourse. And a few said the condom broke or fell off. Overall, about a third of the participants had even used a condom the last time they had sex. Which sounds low, but this includes people who are in committed monogamous relationships and those playing the field. Still, physical barriers are pretty basic. I mean, when you go camping, you could avoid sunburns and bug bites by covering up from head to toe, but that's not a lot of fun. That's why we have sunscreen and bug spray. But so far, nobody's been able to come up with the sunscreen of STI prevention. That's partly because STIs aren't one thing. They're viruses and bacteria, passed via blood and fluids, and they infect through penetration and just with skin-to-skin -skin contact. But there is good news. Little by little, scientists are chipping away at better methods of STI prevention. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, but the individual ones? They might just do the trick. Today, you're going to find out why those solutions have been so challenging and why we're still having the same kind of safe sex as King Tut did. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. talk nomenclature. I know that in my own health classes back in junior high and high school, we called them STDs. But these days, STI is the term most experts use. And of course, you've also got the old-fashioned venereal disease. 
And the word venereal comes from the word venery, which means like immoral sexual behavior. So talk about judgment, even in the name, right? And then in the 70s, STD sort of came into vogue because let's just, you know, acknowledge that like, it's just sexually transmitted. It doesn't mean that something immoral, right? Or illegal or tawdry went on. So sexually transmitted disease was thought to be sort of more accurate. But then when we discovered HPV, we understood that there are so many things that are just infections that never cause disease. They come and they go silently. And so in the 90s, folks said, well, why don't we start calling it STI? Because that's more scientifically accurate. And then some folks felt less stigmatized being labeled as having an infection rather than having a disease. That's Ina Park. She's an associate professor at the UC San Francisco School of Medicine, a medical consultant for the CDC and the medical director of the California Prevention Training Center. She's also the author of the new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And the fact that STD is right in the title of her book ought to give you a hint as to how she feels about the term. My argument is you don't want either of them, probably. You don't want an STI or an STD, but... I'm all for using the terminology that makes people feel less stigmatized. So I am, you know, definitely in support of STI. I use it as much as I can. But in my field of research, we know that some of these infections do actually cause disease. So we actually use both terms, you know, in a professional capacity. So STI means sexually transmitted infection and STD means sexually transmitted disease. Got it. I think. Yeah, right about now, you might be wondering the same thing I was wondering. What is the difference between an infection and a disease? Well, think about it this way. Like, you know, you can get the infection with chlamydia, right? It may do nothing. It may just sit there. And in fact, some people can even clear chlamydia on their own. But sometimes chlamydia will actually creep up. You know, I'll just use folks that have a uterus, for example, creep up into the uterus, into the fallopian tubes. It can cause scarring. It could cause an ectopic pregnancy. It could cause inflammation or pelvic inflammatory disease. And those are actual, you know, changes to your body from the normal to a diseased state, right? And so the, it always starts off as an infection and it may or may not end up causing a disease. Like for the HPV, you can get the HPV infection. Some people are going to get precancer and some people are going to get cancer, which I would consider a disease. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Then there are a lot of like slang terms. Yeah. I know a lot of people will say, you know, if they've been tested, they're like, I'm clean, which yes. feels weird. Do you have likes and dislikes about some of the slang terms that people use? I'm so glad you brought that up because can I just tell you a, a brief story? So yeah. whenever I travel, people ask me what I do because I think I'm just very extroverted and people want to talk to me. So I was in line checking in for a hotel and someone asked me what I did. And I meant said, oh, I study sexually transmitted infections. And, you know, I take care of patients at a sexual health clinic. And she took a step back. She smiled. She took a step back and she's like, I just want you to know that I'm clean. And I was like, wow, the words like clean are for your toilet or your dishes or, you know what I mean? Or the floor in your room. But I do not think we should use that term at all to talk about people's sexual health status. You know, I think if you want to talk about your STI status, you can say I'm either positive or negative, but I hate the words clean because the opposite of clean implies it's dirty. And having an infection has nothing to do with like cleanliness or hygiene. You can be the most impeccable germaphobe, hygiene freak or whatever, and you can have an STI enter the picture. So it, I just really think we should throw out the word clean. 
So can we do, can we do that, Ashley, right now? Yes, <laughs> let's do it right now. No more. <laughs> no more clean. No more clean. Yes, this isn't a matter of hygiene. If it was, maybe STIs wouldn't be so hard to eradicate. I mean, we've been dealing with them for a long, long time. For herpes, we think that the records that I have been looking into in terms of molecular evolution studies, even like 1.6 million years ago, they think that herpes, which actually affects many, many species, not, you know, have their own form of herpes virus. They think that 1.6 million years ago, there was a form that infected primates that then mutated and then only infects humans now. But when we talk about like outbreaks, where we recognize that there was outbreaks of an infection in a community. The earliest one that I have read about was for syphilis in the 1400s and 1500s. But when we look at the science and the data of how these infections have evolved, we're talking like over a million years. So if we've been living with them for that long, Ashley, like they're not going anywhere. We might as well get used to them and figure out how to live with them, right? Have we had the protection against them for that long? Like condoms and things like that? Well, people have tried, you know, even like ancient societies like the Egyptians and the Romans and whatnot tried um, to create barriers out of animal intestines and other, you know, linen cloth and things like that. The modern condom that we know about now, you know, the latex condom has been around since about the 20s. But isn't that sad? I feel like we should have something higher tech, like an app. Or I don't know, like a <laughs> like a laser or something. You know what I mean? Right. That, that could just blast them out of existence. And we don't have anything higher tech. We just have barriers. And we have, you know, the traditional condom that you're probably familiar with, Ashley. And then have you heard of the internal condom? They used to call it the female condom. You know, that device was kind of dying on the vine. And there's some folks who are actually trying to resurrect it now, like a colleague of mine, Lisa Kinsella. She has a startup actually to bring it back and it's like sexier and rebranded and she calls it Louie, let us wear it. But yeah, she's trying to bring back a method that, you know, someone can control and they can insert it either in the vagina or they can insert it in the anal region for anal sex. But that's all we have is all we have are these barriers. And the problem is, is that you can make them colored and flavored and, and thinner, but they're not super fun. Right. <laughs> I'm the first to, I'm the first to admit that they're, we need to make them more fun. And I feel like if it enhanced sex and somehow and made sex feel better, we could get people super excited about using them. Yeah. Well, what about, because I know there's prep for HIV, right? Yes. Is there any work in doing that for other, other STIs? PrEP, by the way, stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's an amazing drug that can reduce a person's risk of getting HIV from sex by as much as 99%. If we could develop medications like that for all the STIs, it would be a total game changer. So, are people working on them? Yes. And in fact, one of the studies that's going on in the clinic where I work is they're looking at this medication called doxycycline, which you may have heard of because people take it sometimes for acne. And it's been around, I think, since the 60s, if I'm correct. And people are looking at it like as a post-exposure, like a morning after pill or whatever for STIs, which wouldn't that be great if it works well? Because sometimes, you know, you know, 
the morning after you've had an encounter, you're like, whoa, I was really drunk. I didn't use a condom. This would be a good time to take some medication. You know what I mean? Also to avoid pregnancy, if pregnancy is a possibility for you, you could just take hopefully your STI morning after pill, your contraceptive morning after pill. And if you need HIV prevention, you can also take HIV prevention after the fact as well called post-exposure prophylaxis. So yeah, it would be great if we had that whole compliment to offer people, you know, the morning after, right? But right now it's just, uh, we have for HIV, both pre-exposure prophylaxis as well as post-exposure. And then uh, obviously for contraception, we have, you know, you can use contraception before and you can use morning after pill afterwards. But until we've got drugs to prevent any and all STIs, people are going to have to take other precautions. Using condoms, getting tested, and talking about safety with your partner are all important. But what about the specific kind of sex? Is one kind safer than the others? That's really hard for me to say because any sex without barriers can potentially transmit STIs. Now, I'll tell you from an HIV perspective, oral sex is the least likely to transmit. Oral sex is definitely safer sex when it comes to HIV, but it's actually really good for transmitting chlamydia, gonorrhea, and even syphilis. So, and HPV can also go into the throat as well. So there isn't any one type of sex that's necessarily safer than the others. I think for bloodborne viruses such as HIV, anal sex can be the most risky, especially if you're the receptive partner, because those tissues are really delicate. They can, you know, get little tears pretty easily. And so you have to use lots of lube and things like that. So those are the sort of highest risk types of sex for, you know, HIV transmission, but you can get an STI from doing anything <laughs> pretty much. Right. Is it, is it blood that really transmits most of this stuff or is, does it no, depend on it? Totally depends. Like for HPV and for herpes, all you need is skin to skin contact. You don't even have to have any kind of penetration for those to be transmitted. And then for gonorrhea and chlamydia, those things like, let's say it's a penis and a vagina sex or whatever, it can be found inside the cervix. You know what I mean? Um, and it can also be found inside like of the urethra. So when the semen comes out, for example, that can have the, the bug in it. So it's actually not inside the blood at all. Wow. Yeah. And let's talk about HPV a little bit. Yeah. I know that's the reason that all of us vagina havers have to go get pap smears all the time. That's right. So what is it? What are the symptoms and like, why, why do we have to check for it so often? Yeah, well, it's definitely the most common STI and pretty much like over 80% of people get it at some point in their sexual lives. So what I say to everybody is that you're going to get HPV. If you get it, it says nothing about you other than the fact that you're a sexually active person. But, you know, now there's over 200 different types that have been classified, but about 40 types infect the genital area. And you know, for the vast majority of people, they get an HPV infection, you get rid of it within two years. You don't even know that it's there for the most part. But unfortunately, you know, for a small minority of people, it can persist. And then for some people that'll cause warts, but those HPV types do not cause cancer, by the way, the ones that cause warts. And then for other people, like for folks that have a vagina and a cervix, it will sit there and then it'll start to create precancerous changes. And hopefully when you go in and either get a pap test or an HPV test, it will pick up those precancerous abnormalities before they become cancer, right? 
And in which case you often need to have a biopsy and then you have a procedure to cut out anything if it happens to be precancerous. But the amazing thing is, is that especially when you're younger, like folks that are under 25, even when they get like an early precancer, they can actually clear it. Sometimes their immune system can clear it on their own. So not everybody actually even needs treatment, but I think if it comes up, you know what I mean? On a screening test, don't ignore it, obviously, you know, go in and check out what you need to do. But some people you can just watch closely and they will just get rid of it on their own, believe it or not. Wow. That's amazing. It isn't. The human body is amazing. (laughs) Have we, is that, is that recent knowledge or have we known that for a while? It's more recent knowledge. Actually, like when I was coming up through the ranks, you know what I mean? In my early sexual life, when you got those changes, you, it automatically bought you a surgery and now that's not the case. And so as our understanding of HPV has grown, we've been able to actually be less aggressive with how we treat HPV. And now that we have a vaccine, it's a completely changed the game. You know, the vaccine came out in 2006 and now there's a vaccine. The only HPV vaccine in the United States actually covers nine types. So it's been a game changer in terms of preventing precancers and preventing warts. And now the FDA approved use for prevention of throat and mouth cancer also related to HPV. Cause you know, you can get oral HPV from giving oral sex as well to people. Yeah. It's, it's such a great cancer prevention vaccine. And I encourage anyone who's under 45 to go out and get it. Under 45. Last I heard it was like under 25 or something. Yeah. Right? They changed it. They changed it. They increased the upper age range. So now anyone nine aged nine to 45 can get it. That's great. Yes. Yeah, oh. So if you haven't, go do it. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Another super common one is herpes. Yes. Incredibly common. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Because I know, I mean, actually, just for the occasion, uh, my, my body decided to give me a cold sore for, Excellent. for, this, uh, for this interview. So, I mean, a lot of people get cold sores, right? A lot of people do. And guess what? You're in really good company because about half of the U.S. population actually has herpes type one. And so... If you had a cold sore and then you were to give someone oral sex who doesn't have any antibodies to herpes, they might actually develop cold sore, you know, on the genitals essentially is what it is. And herpes type two is the same. It's just that it tends to create more recurrent outbreaks. And for cold sores, like herpes type one that you get in the genitals, many people just have one outbreak in their life and don't actually have problems afterwards. Which is weird because people who have cultures in their mouth do get recurrent outbreaks there. But for some reason, when people get herpes type one in the genitals, it doesn't tend to cause like recurrent lasting issues. So that that is a big misconception I think I had for a long time is that it's not that herpes one is the mouth one and herpes two is the genital one. You can get either one on either area. You can, although herpes type two does not live that well in the mouth. So it's uncommon to get herpes type two in the oral area, but herpes type one loves the genitals, loves the mouth and herpes type two in general tends to stay in the genital area and in the anal area too, by the way. And so many people have it. I mean, probably last I looked, it was like almost 50 million, 40 something, you know, 48 million or so people in the US have it. And it's about one in eight people are living with HSV2. Not everybody knows, but there's a lot of people out there who have herpes. And there's a lot of stigma there, right? Like there are whole dating apps for people that have herpes. So is that reasonable? I mean, what is it life-changing if you catch it? It doesn't have to be. It's interesting because I interviewed patients living with herpes for my book and 
people had different approaches to it. I think some folks, you know, who had just been diagnosed felt like, okay, my sex life as I know it is over. And then there are folks who've been living with it for longer who realize, oh, this is not as big of a deal as I thought it was when I first was infected. I think the thing that changes about your sex life is that you now have to give your little mini disclosure TED talk or whatever. And people who are not as informed about it may freak out and overreact. And so my public service announcement for the taboo science listeners is that there are so many people walking around with herpes who don't have any idea that they have it. And you are more likely to catch it from one of these random people than somebody who's actually diagnosed, who's like taking suppressive medicine every day, who says as soon as they feel like they might have an outbreak, they will not, you know, engage in having sex. Like that person is actually doing a lot of proactive things to prevent transmission. And you're less likely to get it from that person than the person who is just like, la-di-da, you know, walking around and shedding the virus and unaware that they're shedding it. So that's why I am glad that those dating sites exist. You know what I mean? If it's helping people connect without having to have a difficult conversation. But I say, if someone tells you they have herpes and they also tell you that they're taking suppressive medication and really doing everything that they can and you use a barrier, I say, please have sex with people who have herpes. Does someone have to have an outbreak of herpes for you to catch it? No, it's like how you know, animals shed, you know, like a dog, like sheds their hair, like completely silently. It's the same thing. There can be this silent shedding completely without symptoms. The thing is, is that it's not very common. Actually, like once you get diagnosed with herpes, you shed the most in those first couple of years after diagnosis. Then after two years, you're really only shedding on about 10% of the days out of the year. So if you think about a month, maybe three days out of that month, you might be shedding virus unless you're having an outbreak, right? But I'm saying, let's say you have no outbreak, you're going to be shedding intermittently for about three days out of that month. The problem is, is you don't know what those days are, which is why I think for peace of mind, when people first get diagnosed, I say, go on suppression. You know what I mean? And you can take it for years. I know people who've been taking suppression for 10 years, go on suppression. And then now, you know, whatever amount that you're shedding, you've just reduced that, right? And so you've reduced the ability to transmit. And, you know, you've cut the risk of giving a partner herpes by at least half. I wish it was 100%. Like when I become queen of the world, like that's what I want to invent or make happen is have a drug that completely suppresses the virus like we do for HIV. And then I really feel like we're going to cut out the stigma. Yeah. In the battle against STIs, our progress with HIV is truly astonishing. I don't know if you've heard of this concept called U equals U. It means undetectable equals untransmittable. And it's a tagline that this prevention campaign came up with, but it's true. Even, you know, Dr. Fauci actually even came out and made a statement about it is that if you take your HIV medicine every day and your virus is undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV to a sexual partner. We can't say that about herpes yet, and I would love to be able to say that, but this whole idea of U equals U is game-changing for HIV. So now, people who have HIV and people who don't have HIV can mix all the time, and now some of the apps, you can actually put your HIV status on your profile so that you don't even have to have the conversation if you don't want to. So it's really a game-changer for how people can connect sexually across communities of people with HIV and without HIV. 
Then there's the disease that's the polar opposite of HIV's success story. An STI that killed such historic figures as Manet, Gauguin, Oscar Wilde, and Al Capone. But one that you hardly hear about anymore. At least, you didn't used to. I feel like I don't know of people getting syphilis these days, but I'm sure it happens. Uh, what what is it and like what what happens when you get it? Well, you just yeah, you just don't know about it because we none of us did. It was almost gone. You know, in 1999, 80 percent of the counties in the U.S. did not report any cases of syphilis. So most of the country had no syphilis. So why would anyone have heard about it? Right. And then. It started to come back in the early 2000s. And I think that was driven by the rise of the internet to hook up. And it primarily was focused in men who have sex with men. And then it's gradually gone, you know, just from men who have sex with men to men who are bisexual and also then into women and into heterosexual men. So now, it is everywhere, but not to the extent that something like chlamydia, like chlamydia has 2.8 million cases, which is just staggering, right? And then, you know, syphilis has 130,000. So it's not on the same scale, but now you can't say, oh, it's really only happening to gay men. That is not true at all. It's really happening more commonly everywhere, but it's so much less common than the other STIs that a lot of people like don't know anybody who's ever had syphilis. But I mean, I think everybody knows someone who's either had HPV, herpes or chlamydia or one of those. But a lot of people don't know someone who's had syphilis just because it hasn't yet escalated to the extent of the other STIs. And many times it causes no symptoms at all because the first stage of, of syphilis where you get like you actually do get an ulcer. That can happen like up inside the vagina. It can happen in the rectum. It can happen in the mouth and it's not painful. So how would anybody even know that it's there, right? And you can actually live with syphilis for decades and have it be sort of a silent infection. And if it is untreated, you can get really serious like neurologic and you know, skin and, and cardiovascular complications. Those complications can include blindness, paralysis, dementia, and eventually death. And that's after decades of no symptoms at all. It's scary. But luckily, the test costs less than a dollar and treatment is also really inexpensive, too. So it's totally worth, you know, like if you're going to get tested, say, hey, you know, are you including syphilis? And it's really easy to add it on to an STI panel. Yeah, sounds like it's definitely worth it. That's kind of terrifying. It's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. And luckily, it's not one of those that we have any antibiotic resistance. So we've been using penicillin basically for syphilis ever since that it was developed. And there's no antibiotic resistance, still using the same old drug that we've been using since the 40s. Wow. And it still works beautifully. That's a that's a lazy infection. Hasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like why bother? I know it's like it's, it's like I'm not going to bother to you know develop antibiotic resistance. To yeah. <laughs> that's kind of unusual for an infection these days. More and more microbes are developing a resistance to the drugs we use to treat them, and that's creating a really dangerous situation. About 2.8 million antibiotic resistant infections occur every year in the United States. And more than 35,000 people die from them. The CDC keeps a watch list of the most dangerous microbes. And among its top five most urgent threats, there's one STI. Drug-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea. 
it's really a super smart organism where it's developed antibiotic resistance to everything we've ever used. And so I don't know if you knew this, Ashley, but in 2020, at the end of the year, the CDC actually had to pull one of the antibiotics that we used to use for gonorrhea. So we're down to one because of too much antibiotic resistance. So we're down to one antibiotic in this whole country to treat gonorrhea. Oh, that is terrifying. The 800,000 infections. I know. So that's why I'm telling people, I want people to have sex, but I just want people to know what's out there. And so use barriers until you know what's going on with people, you know, but for gonorrhea, yeah, we only have one injectable medication and there are a bunch that are being studied in clinical trials, but there's nothing ready to go. So if you do get a infection that's resistant to that antibiotic, there are other things that can be used, but in England, when that's happened, folks had to be hospitalized, if you can believe that, for gonorrhea. And they had to get antibiotics for three days, you know, IV, which we really don't want to do. Boy, that's, yeah, that's about the scariest thing you've said so far. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not trying it's to scare right. people. But you know what? Um, one thing I talk about in this, I have this section in the book called Deep Throat, where I talk about pharyngeal gonorrhea or gonorrhea in the throat, because... It's one of those infections that can be hanging out in your throat and be completely silent. And there's other bacteria that also just hang out in your throat that are what we call commensal organisms or organisms that are just there that don't cause any disease. They have this bacterial sex actually between species of Neisseria, which is the, the genus of the bacteria, Neisseria gonorrhea. They can have bacterial sex and actually exchange genes that give antibiotic resistance back and forth. The throat is actually a really common place that we think antibiotic resistance might be developing. Oof. But my message is just, you know, get tested and continue to have sex, but just understand, you know, that it's better to like use barriers with folks until you know what's going on because of stuff like you don't want to be that person that gets a, you know, antibiotic resistant infection and now has like a big headache to deal with. That's why getting tested regularly is a really good idea. And if one of those tests does turn out positive, the right thing to do is to tell anyone you hooked up with. So first of all, I think the kind thing to do is and the decent thing to do is to notify people. And some people may not actually want to text people. You know what I mean? to know exactly where the infection came from. So there's a website called tellyourpartner.org. There's also a website called InSpot, so I-N-S-P-O-T. So you can send an anonymous message to folks saying, I'm sorry, you know, you've been exposed to an STI. And you can actually specify what they've been exposed to and say, you should go get, you know, tested and treated. So people have done this to prank each other. I don't recommend that. Um, but <laughs> of course they have. Of course they have, right? Like someone sent me a card that says like, you have crabs. And I was like, okay, ha ha. You know what I mean? Um, of course I looked, but I didn't. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but, but then I just was like, oh, people must be doing this to prank each other. But, and I, what I've seen people do, which I think is cool, is when I've given them the diagnosis, like they've just texted their partner to say, I'm at the clinic. This is what I have. And luckily, in all 50 states now, for gonorrhea and chlamydia, you can actually just treat the partner without seeing them. So like, let's say you came to me and you had chlamydia. I could actually give you medication, Ashley, and I could even give you medication for your partner. I, you know, and we have that in my clinic where it's all prepackaged and it's actually totally legal to do this, to say, 
your partner probably has chlamydia too, if you know, and so here's the medication and you can give it to them. That's great. Yeah. It's called expedited partner therapy and it used to not be legal in all the States, but now I think South Carolina was the last holdout. And now it's actually permissible in all 50 States in the U S so they don't even need to go get tested for it. You don't even need to get tested. I mean, it's ideal to get tested because what if you have something else? Or what if there's HIV? You know what I mean? So I think in general, it's best for a partner. Like if you have an STD, it's great to tell your partner and then have that person ideally come in and get a full like battery of tests and get tested for HIV and get treated. But let's just say, um, you know, you're like, this person is not going to come in. I know them. And I would be totally fine just saying, take this medicine, give it to your partner. And then we know at least that in this relationship between the two of you, we've eliminated that infection. You know what I mean? And then you have to have the hard conversations about like, where did this come from? (laughs) That's a separate, that's a separate issue. And by the way, STIs can't come from a toilet seat. I asked. No, I mean, gosh, you'd really have to like someone would have to have mashed up against that toilet seat and then you would have to be mashed up against that toilet seat. I mean, you can get things from foreign bodies like HPV, for example, lives on sex toys for hours. So in general, don't share your toys or wash them in between. You know what I mean? So foreign bodies, like if you insert, you know, contaminated sex toys that are shared between people, you could definitely spread some things, but you're not going to get it from a public toilet seat. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone tells you that, they're like, oh, I didn't cheat. I got it from a toilet seat. You're like, "Uh, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Good to remember. And while we're on the topic, you also can't get herpes from a hot tub. No, you cannot. Can I just put that to rest right now? So first of all, the heat is going to kill it, but you're not going to get herpes from sharing water with somebody in like in, in that way. And I think as long as you're not rubbing up against the person when they're having an outbreak or shedding their virus, you know what I mean? You're going to be fine. But there's one thing I was sure was a myth that actually isn't. And that's the fact that crabs are going extinct, partially thanks to our grooming habits. I have not seen a crab for 17 years. It's so sad. I mean, it's like fascinating to see them. It's like incredibly satisfying because you put them under the microscope and you see the little blood in their stomach because they've been gnawing on somebody's, you know, skin for a blood meal. But there's nowhere for them to live. It's like pubic deforestation, habitat destruction, because, you know, pubic lice or crabs, they don't want to live in your stomach hair and they like the coarse texture of pubic hair. So there's like body lice, Head lice, pubic lice, they're different species and they have their preferred habitats. So that is the one positive effect because, I mean, who wants crabs, right? And no one is going to miss them if they become extinct. Yeah, and I certainly haven't seen one in San Francisco for a really long time. But that does not mean that taking everything off will save you from STIs. In fact, it can create a breeding ground for new infections. And the thing that I just say to folks about it is that if you take your pubic hair off in a hurry, or like, let's say you get a Brazilian, right? You're creating lots of little cuts and tears in the skin. So don't like do a aggressive removal, like shave your whole pubic area and then immediately go out and hook up with somebody. Because now you have all this skin that is now slightly damaged and it is a set up to get certain STIs like herpes and HPV that are viruses that can just go in through the skin. So one of the folks that I profile in the book, 
was this uh, researcher named Benjamin Breyer who studies pubic hair and its relationship to STIs. And his advice was, it's fine to take it off, but give yourself a waiting period. Like if you think that you might go out that night, do it in the morning to give your skin like eight hours to heal. You know what I mean? Before you go out and get exposed to someone else's uh, viruses or bacteria. So that's my advice as well. Like I don't tell people not to take it off, but I say, don't do it for me. And if you're going to do it for yourself, give yourself some time to let your skin heal. So in the end, what can you do to prevent getting an STI? Ina says you should just try to avoid doing things you'll regret. People have asked me, what can I do in terms of my sex life to avoid STIs? And I have told people you can't avoid STIs completely. So my take home message is really about trying to like live your sex life to maximize the pleasure in it and minimize the regret. You know, when people have sex with someone who isn't kind or isn't nice, you know what I mean? And then they get an STI. They're just so pissed. Yeah. I think in general, like knowing your partners and liking your partners. And I say that like in my epilogue, you know, have sex with people that you like, that you think are like decent people. And then if an STI enters the pictures, it's still a total bummer. But if you think the person's a jerk or you don't remember their name or whatever, then, then you often feel a huge sense of regret. And that's what I'm about here. Like we, we can't eliminate risk. And we learned this during COVID-19. We cannot eliminate the risk that we have from just existing and living, what we can do is like we take calculated risks, we can mitigate our risk, and then we take control in the ways that we can take control. So go out there and have lots of sex and have a good time. But um, come in and see me if you need to get screened or if you're having an issue. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Ina Park was a pleasure to talk to, and her book is just as delightful as she is. It's called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And you can find a link to pick it up in the show notes. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Taboo Science, all one word. Or just visit the website to find it all in one place. That's at taboosience.show. Get ready for the next episode, because I've sort of like built my career on answering people's weird science questions. And this time we're diving deep to answer one of the weirdest ones I get. And it has to do with head transplants. Stay tuned. <laughs>